The House comes to oral questions. Question number one in the name of Debbie Ngarewa-Pekka. Uh, uh, my question is to the Minister of Health. Does he stand by his statement on expanding access to affordable dental care? It's an area we need to give attention to at some time, and if so, when will he give it his attention? Speaker. Uh, the Honourable Andrew Little. Uh, Mr Speaker, yes. How we provide equitable access to dental care is a long-standing issue in this country. Like most issues in health, most equity problems disproportionately affect Māori. The policy right now is that free dental care should be available to children and adolescents up to the age of 18 years. Notwithstanding this, I'm aware that some families experience difficulty in accessing this entitlement and more work is required to address this. However, this government is committed to increasing New Zealanders' access to dental care. In this year's budget, we allocated $125.8 million over four years to increasing dental grants and making them available for more people and in more situations. This means that from the 1st of December, the grant more than triples from $300 to $1,000. It will also be available for preventative dental care and not just for emergencies. And it will be available to working people on low incomes as well as beneficiaries. These changes are expected to help some 50,000 people a year get the dental care they need. In November last year, we passed the Health Fluoridation of Drinking Water Amendment Act, giving the Director-General of Health the power to direct local authorities to fluoridate their water supplies to protect people's teeth against decay. This new power was used in July this year, with notices being issued to 14 local authorities. And finally, Mr Speaker, the Oral Health Promotion Initiative is underway since de December 2021, as it has provided five, or nearly 500,000 toothbrush and toothpaste packs to low-income families. Supplementary. What is his response to the 83.7% of people in the recent News Hub Read research poll who said that government should subsidise dental care to make it cheaper for adults to go to the dentist? Uh, Mr Speaker, as I indicated in the answer to the primary question, um, there is an, initi an initiative funded in this year's budget about to take effect from the 1st of December that will benefit about 50,000 people. Um, but in terms of a claim to fully fund all adult dental health care, the cost of that would literally run into billions of dollars. And uh, at the moment, the health budget, which we've added to by about 45% in five years, is fully committed. But we will continue to look for ways that we can improve uh, uh, support for dental health care. Supplementary. Is he concerned by findings of the new report, Tooth Be Told, that 40% of New Zealanders and more than half of Māori and Pacifica people can't afford dental care, meaning that Aotearoa recorded the highest unmet need for adult dental care amongst 11 comparable countries? Uh, Mr Speaker, um, I've read that report and obviously uh, it, those figures are a concern, but I don't think they take into account the impact of this year's budget policy initiative, which I think will make a difference. But that said, I think the member raises an important point, and indeed that discussion document from the Association of Salaried Medical Specialists. We do need to stay alert to um, the unmet need for dental health care and continue to do what we can to improve that. Supplementary. Does he accept research from Treasury which found the government could fund as much as $900 million worth of subsidies each year for universal dental care and still break even with a $1.60 return on each dollar spent. Mr Speaker, I'm not aware of that work from Treasury. Treasury seldom comes to ministers with the demand that they spend more money. But um, as I said before, we do need to keep abreast of um, the you know, challenges that go with unmet adult dental health needs. 
Um, I think this year's budget policy will go some way to addressing that, um, but we will uh, keep a close eye on how that unfolds. Supplementary. Does he agree with the Association of Salaried Medical Specialists and the Auckland City Mission that universal dental care is critical to the good health of everyone in Aotearoa? And if so, will he commit to funding free dental care for all? Uh, Mr Speaker, as I've indicated on that latter point that the member raises, no, uh, I'm not in a position to make that commitment, um, but that is why we do look for opportunities to improve the level of government support we provide for um, access to dental health care. I agree with the member in terms of the, the tenet of the first part of her question. Good dental care, good oral health care is um, very important uh, for a good life. Uh, question number two, Brooke Van Velden. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Housing and reads as follows. Is she confident that Kaingaora will meet its deadline of 1 July 2023 for complying with the healthy home standards? And can she confirm that the government will not give Kaingaora an extension to its deadline? Mr uh, Speaker. The Honourable Carmel Sipaloni. Mr Speaker, on behalf of the Minister for Housing, uh, we've heard from landlords that there have been challenges across the sector in complying with the healthy home standards. COVID-19 did create delays with labour shortages, issues accessing tenants' homes and supply chain problems for products like heat pumps and insulation materials. We want to be pragmatic about our response to this, but that is currently under active Cabinet consideration and so I cannot preempt a Cabinet decision. Kainga Order has made good progress with 84% of Kainga Order's orders tenanted housing stock meeting the standards or being upgraded right now. 43,775 homes, so 68%, already meet the standards and over 10,600 Kainga Order homes are currently in progress. Kainga Order have also accelerated delivery from 180 homes being upgraded per week in June 2021 to 600 homes per week in October 2022. We are doing more to improve the quality of rentals in public homes than any government in decades. Uh, point of order, point Mr of Speaker. Order, I'm uh, not Brooke sure that um, the Minister addressed the question. Um, she talked a lot about landlords, but not necessarily kainga aura and having confidence that they would meet the healthy home standards, uh, nor confirming uh, that they will not. Yeah, I'm happy to, to rule on that. In terms of the first part of the question, um, I, I would rule that it has been addressed. Uh, the second part of the question, not um, completely, um, although there was information referring to it. What I will do is give you an additional no, question. That's a significant uh, well, um, I've, made, I've actually made the ruling. Um, she did address it. She talked about yeah, I, 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 and I'll stand up on my feet this time. Yes, that's right. I, I said that the minister um, uh, did address. Um, I, I'll read the I'll read the bit um, that I have a little bit of concern about. Can she confirm the government will not give Kainga order an extension? That wasn't explicitly uh, addressed, although what I'm saying, that there was information saying that um, that leads me to believe that it, it was addressed. But I am going to give the member an additional question. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Has Kainga Ora asked 
for an extension to its 2023 deadline to meet the healthy home standards? And Mr Speaker, referring to the answer to my primary question, uh, the issue that the, and the matter that the member is raising is something that's under active consideration. I certainly can't refer to details around that. Supplementary. Will she rule out ever giving Kainga Ora an extension to the Healthy Home Standards deadline? And Mr Speaker, as I mentioned at the beginning, many landlords, including Kainga Ora, have experienced some challenges over the last couple of years due to COVID. Uh, they were unforeseen. Um, with regards to that matter, it is a matter that is part of something that is under active consideration. When was the issue of a Kainga Ora deadline brought to Cabinet? Mr Speaker, as I said, this matter is under active consideration. Um, with respect to anything regarding it, it needs to be considered by Cabinet. And in those instances, anything related to such matter will be released in due course. A point of order, Chris Bush. I've been watching the flow uh, back and forth, and I think two or three, maybe four times now, the Minister has said the matter is under active consideration. Now, the fact that something is under active consideration does not obviate the Minister from answering that question in Parliament. It may be grounds potentially for withholding information under the Official Information Act, but successive speakers have ruled that the standard of accountability in Parliament in question time is different to that under the Official Information Act. If the Minister knows what the answer is, she cannot just say the matter is under consideration, or even if it's actively or inactively. Many matters across government are under active consideration on a regular basis. That does not mean Ministers are not accountable to the House for what matters are under active consideration. They have to answer, or at least to address, the question. To the point of order. Um, Dr Duncan. Uh, clearly the Minister, Cabinet proceedings are confidential, and the fact that a matter is under consideration by and the fact that the matter is under consideration um, by Cabinet. Um, order. Yep, yep. Uh, speaking to points of order uh, should be heard in silence. Don't need a commentary. Can you start again? The, matter, the fact that the matter is under consideration by Cabinet is clearly a reason for not disclosing what is under consideration. And therefore, the Minister has clearly addressed the question. It really comes under the, the banner of that members might not be um, satisfied with the answer, but the, the question has actually been addressed. Uh, question number three, Anahela Kanungatara Susuki. Ah, Kiora e te Manafakawa. He pātai ki te mini tafakahia to ora. What announcements has she made about supporting people into employment? Mr Speaker, uh, recently I announced that the Ministry of Social Development's role will expand to support non-beneficiaries into employment, education or training. As part of this, we are also doubling down on our focus to reduce barriers to work for those at risk of long-term benefit receipt by ensuring they are a priority cohort for determining investment and service provision. These were issues identified by the Welfare Expert Advisory Group and the Productivity Commission. They called on us to strengthen and expand these services and we agreed to this as part of the welfare overhaul. This shift underlines our government's efforts to support people into jobs 
as well as progress the welfare overhaul. Pātai Tāpiri, what work does this announcement build on? Mr Speaker, in response to COVID, we invested funding for MSD to support a wider group of New Zealanders into employment, including supporting those affected by COVID to return to work quickly. If we take FlexiWage, for example, over 5,000 people who may have gone on to benefit went into a FlexiWage programme. We've also seen success in our targeting so far, particularly for longer-term beneficiaries, with 35,700 people who had been receiving a main benefit for longer than a year moving into work over the previous 12 months. Mr Speaker, with record numbers of people moving off benefit and into work and a promising pipeline of people participating across all our employment, education and training services, it's clear the expansion has proven its worth. Why is it important to focus on both cohorts, not one or the other? Mr Speaker, it shouldn't be a case of one or the other. We need to continue to focus on those on benefit and the support they need to get into employment. What's been missing up until now has been the focus at the preventative end, where you support people into employment, educational training before they need to consider coming onto benefit. We believe we need to do both, and our focus remains on those disadvantaged by the labour market. How, the, how does this announcement prepare New Zealand in the long run? Mr Speaker, we have to be ready to tackle whatever comes our way, which is why we're thinking ahead. This includes making sure we've got the systems in place to respond whilst accelerating efforts to supporting people, whether you're a non-beneficiary or job seeker, into employment, education or training. The investment now will pay dividends in the long run, and I'm pleased that Frank Colloy of the Funnel also agrees with this sentiment. He said, quote, if we invest two to three years in these young people, they'll be much better off, not just today, but in the future, end quote. Pātai what feedback has she seen on this announcement? Mr Speaker, I was pleased to read that Western Bay of Plenty's Economic Development Agency Priority One's Workforce and Policy General Manager Greg Simmons welcomed the broadening of scope. He said, quote, the success of Priority One's Ararau Skills and Employment Hub, which is supported by He Rangatahi funding, is evidence that a proactive, community-centric approach is required to support the thousands of New Zealanders at risk of longer-term disengagement from our labour market at a time when industry is crying out for people, end quote. Awesome. Uh, question number five, Nicola Willis. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Acting Prime Minister and asks, does he stand by all of his government statements and actions? Mr Speaker. Uh, the Honourable Grant Roberts. Mr Speaker, yes, in particular the new tools to reduce gun crime that come into force today. Firearms prohibition orders will improve public safety by stopping people whose behaviour and actions represent a high risk of violence from accessing firearms or restricted weapons. The new legislation gives a judge the power to impose an order lasting 10 years and makes it a criminal offence to breach the conditions of the order, with a breach being an imprisonable offence. Mr Speaker, the delivery of this legislation has been promised by previous governments, but is actually finally being delivered. It took Mr Brown nine years to do nothing. We have done it. Why have ram raids increased fivefold under Labor? 
Mr Speaker, as we know, uh, in the current period of time, REM rates have increased, although overall levels of crime have come down. Uh, there is, from time to time, spates of different types of crimes. Uh, we do know that in recent times we're starting to see uh, that trend downwards, but clearly uh, that is now a focus for the police. They've been arresting hundreds of people, and we've been trying to get in behind the causes of that. What we haven't been doing is reheating old, failed policies like boot camps. Does he think the current approach to youth crime is working when there is a new RAM raid every 15 hours? Mr Speaker, uh, I think that the initiatives that the government is undertaking, including making sure that we get wraparound services around all of those who have been convicted, making sure that we get into those families to make sure that they are given the support that they needed, is starting to work. What won't work is a policy that the National Party previously had where 86% of the people in the boot camps re-offended. It's a failed policy. What evidence does he have that the government's soft-on-crime approach is working? Mr Speaker, uh, the member is completely incorrect in her description, but if she does want evidence, we can return to the MSD study that said that 86% of people, when this was tried by the last national government, re-offended. We could go to the evidence from the then uh, Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor, who on the 12th of June 2018 said, Boot camps do not work. Mr Speaker, all boot camps do is create faster, fitter criminals who do more crime. Does, does he think the government's policies are working for people like vape room owner Savi Aurora, who told NewsHub that he got a call from neighbours at 3am to alert him of the ram raid to his shop? Quote, I felt so terrible. It was so stressful. It was very scary. I have a little kid at home and my wife didn't want me to go and check it out. Mr Speaker, uh, every member of this House would have extreme sympathy for anyone who is affected by a RAM raid. The police are actively making sure that they arrest those who are responsible. We have a focus within our approach in the justice system to supporting and protecting victims and stopping them from being victimised in the first place. The members' party's policy of boot camps will create more criminals and therefore more victims. It is a failed policy. The members should be embarrassed by it. Does the Acting Prime Minister understand that victims of crime don't want his sympathy? They want a stop to re-offending. And how many more retailers have to have their stores destroyed and their customers terrorised before his government takes some serious action. Mr Speaker, we are taking action. We are seeing the police arrest record numbers of people here. We are getting in behind the causes of these crimes, the families, the people who need our help and support to be able to turn their lives around. What those people will be feeling today is that the National Party have no new ideas. They're reheating Bill English's leftovers. It failed there, it failed in the UK. We will get fitter, faster criminals doing more crime. It is an embarrassing policy which actually I don't think that member would support. <laughs> Does he see a connection between soaring truancy rates under Labor and soaring youth crime? 
And if so, what's he doing about it? Mr Speaker, every day that a member of the National Party gets up and says that this is truancy, when in actual fact, during COVID, people were obeying the rules of keeping their children home because they had to isolate. The member needs to actually get her facts right instead of scaremongering like that. When will his government stop making excuses and stop wringing its hands and instead take action to get our kids back to school and off the streets, raiding stores and creating carnage. Mr Speaker, we are taking action. We have arrested people. Those programmes are now being wrapped around those who have been arrested. We are intervening to make sure that families have got the support they need. We have got programmes to make sure that we get young people back into school and back into work. All the National Party have to offer is a failed policy. It failed in the United Kingdom. It failed in New Zealand. And that's as good as it gets. Fitter, faster criminals doing more crime, victimising more people. They are a failure of a policy shop over there. Uh, question number five, Lamona Livia Sorsini. Talofalava. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister for the Environment. How will the repeal and replacement of the RMA reduce costs in consenting times? Mr Speaker, uh, the Honourable David Parker. resource consenting has become ever more costly under the RMA. Between 2014-15 and 18-19, council fees increased by 66% for non-notified and 124% for notified consents. It's also taking longer with median decision-making timeframes increasing by 50% in the same years. Processes under the new system will be faster, cheaper and better, delivering substantial cost and time savings. More than 100 district regional plans under the RMA will be replaced by 15 plans. More activities will be permitted in NBA plans. Fewer consents will be needed. Clearer notification requirements, independent hearing panels, better designations, narrower appeals will further reduce delays, cost and relitigation. Fast track, which has already been shown to reduce consenting times by 15 months on average for infrastructure, will be made permanent for infrastructure and significant housing developments. The repeal and replacement of the RMA will be faster, cheaper and better for Kiwis. Supplementary. Why is the government not proposing to replace all resource consenting with the fast track pathway? Mr Speaker, fast track consenting has been shown to reduce consent times by average for of 15 months. I've seen suggestions that fast track should be used for everything. That, of course, is the wrong track, including thousands and thousands of extra applications in fast track would cause it to turn into slow track. <laughs> it would, in fact, delay major infrastructure and housing development. It is a wrong-headed and confused idea. Supplementary. What reaction has he received about the repeal and the replacement of the RMA? Reaction to the government's planned repeal and replacement of the RMA has been positive from experts in the field, including the EMA, EDS and LGNZ. Infrastructure New Zealand says the repeal and replacement quotes marks a long-awaited milestone that can be celebrated. 
and the bills represent a significant shift in focus to prioritise the front end of the planning process rather than relying on the current individual project consenting battleground which results in expensive and delay-ridden bespoke solutions. Supplementary. What other reaction has he received about the repeal and the replacement of the RMA? One commentator last year said that the number one solution to the housing crisis is to repeal and replace the RMA, but now claims that the reduction of more than 100 RMA plans to just 15 NBE plans, the standardising of consent conditions, the reduced consent costs of at least 19 per cent is in fact more bureaucracy and won't improve anything. It seems some people have fallen back in love with the RMA, another donut for the Leader of the Opposition. Order. Oh. Oh, yeah. Supplementary point. I was going to make a ruling on the last oh. comment that I thought you were going to um, ask me to, to do that. Um, the, the government shouldn't use its own questions to itself um, uh, to hold itself accountable to criticise the, uh, the government and certainly um, not to be bringing the Leader of the Opposition into the answer. Supplementary. Supplementary. How does enshrining into law that the purpose of the new bill will be to uh, recognise and uphold te oranga o te taio, a legal term that does not exist in the statute books already, promote certainty and predictability? Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, that clause was recommended by the Randerson panel in effect. Uh, it carries forward the intergenerational environmental test from the RMA to the new system. The idea that the old system was somehow perfect is incredible to me, including in respect of environmental protection, where it failed to deal with cumulative effects. The new system will be far better. Uh, question number six in the name of Dr Shane Vitti. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Minister of Health, which are the three hospital emergency departments with the greatest number of nurse vacancies? as a proportion of their normal full-time equivalent roster, and what are those proportions in each case? Mr. Speaker. Uh, the Honourable Andrew Little. Mr Speaker, I've been advised that data on nurse vacancies, specifically in emergency departments, is not routinely collected at a national level. This information sits with individual emergency departments and would need to be manually collected and collated from all districts, which hasn't been possible in the time available. However, information related to this question was collected on the 2nd of November this year, in response to the member's written parliamentary question, question 39263. At this time, the three hospitals with the highest vacancies in their EDs were Middlemore Hospital, 29.2 vacancies, Hawke's Bay Hospital and Wairau Hospitals combined, 27.34 vacancies, and Wellington Hospital, 20, 20 vacancies. I can also report that as at 30th of June 2022, the total number of employed nurses at Counties Monaco was 275, Hawke's Bay 95 and Capital and Coast was 129. Pressures on emergency departments go back many years, Mr Speaker, and we have many measures underway to address them. Supplementary. How does he explain to people in rural places like Te Kawiti and Taumaranui, who may wait hours in their EDs today, that each of their hospitals is short three ED nurses on average, and yet he will not give nurses a day one pathway to residency? 
Mr Speaker, firstly I rely on the incredible uh, frontline health managers that we have to make sure that, particularly for EDs, that uh, they do the best they can to get the necessary nursing complement in place. And typically what happens in hospitals, large and small, is that uh, if there are um, uh, material uh, gaps in the shift roster for an ED, is that hospital managers will pull nurses from other areas of the hospital to make sure that they are properly staffed. Um, and I take my hat off to not only those ED staff and the nursing staff generally, but to those managers who are dealing with those pressures on a day-to-day -day basis in very difficult circumstances. On the issue of the um, uh, straight-to-residency pathway for nurses, I think we've been uh, haggling about this for some time. I think the member and his party routinely overlooks um, the nurses who are ar arriving from overseas with overseas qualifications, 4,300 have crossed the border in the last year alone, 634 registered with the Nursing Council just in September. We are attracting nurses from overseas here to New Zealand. We still have a long way to go to fill the vacancies that we've got, um, but I back, I back our health leaders to do the right thing in these very difficult circumstances. Supplementary. What does he think will be the impact on ED wait times at Middlemore Hospital today due to the shortage of 29 ED nurses as advised in his response to WPQ 39219? Uh, Mr Speaker, as I said before, I take my hat off to the frontline health managers who every day are dealing with these challenges and who redeploy nurses from other parts of the hospital to meet those gaps. What I can also say too is that um, there are people who turn up to ED and who have to wait longer than is desirable. Um, particularly those, particularly those um, with less acute conditions. Um, and what they can be sure of, however, is that they will still get care in ED. I met a person the other day uh, who had, who was opening remark to me was, he says, oh, I'm one of those who waited 24 hours at mid-central ED. And I said to him, well, that's, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, how did it go? He said the care he had was impeccable. He said he was well looked after. Um, and when he did get admitted to a bed, he needed to be there, but he was very pleased with the level of care that he got, even if he had to wait longer than was desirable in that ED. Supplementary. What does he say to ED specialists who say that every day in every ED is another Middlemore tragedy waiting to happen, given his answer to written questions showing an average of 4,000 people leave ED each month because of wait times, yet within 24 hours, on average, 400 are so ill that they have to return to ED and are admitted. Yeah, Mr Speaker, so um, we know that um, EDs are under pressure and have been for some time, and that's why it was so good to come together with health professionals and health leaders all across the country last Saturday to talk just about how we deal with this problem that, that has been many years in the making. You know, when you underfund the health system for as long as it was, um, prior to this government coming into force. It was important that we actually not only provide the additional funding, but actually start to put together the long-term plans that we need. And what is really disappointing is that that member who had the opportunity to be part of that really important discourse because he's had months criticising what's happened, did not turn up. Supplementary. When he has just disparagingly said in the House that nobody from the opposition bothered to turn up to his health workforce hui last Saturday. Isn't it more troubling that two of his three associate health ministers didn't turn up? And neither, neither did any of Labour's four health select committee MPs. And doesn't this show that Labour MPs want to be as far away as possible from the unfolding health crisis for which he is responsible? 
What's really disappointing is that when so many people recognise that our health system has major challenges and we have a government that has put record sums of money into fixing those problems, we have a party opposite who has no plan and just wants to play politics with people's livelihoods and people's lives. Uh, Mr Speaker, I stand by the measures that this government has taken to put additional funding into our health system, to rebuild our mental health services that were left neglected for so long, to pay nurses more whose pay had gone backwards in real terms under the previous government, a government that has not frozen Pharmac funding for three years, has not frozen investment in buildings and infrastructure for two years as the previous government did. This government is serious about improving our health system and cleaning up the mess left by the previous government. Uh, question number seven, Maya Lubeck. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Associate Minister of Education, School Operations and reads, what recent announcement has she made about better supporting children with the highest learning support needs? Mr uh, Speaker, this morning I was pleased to announce the outcomes of the High Needs Review, where our government has committed to substantial changes to build a system that better supports our kids and young people with the highest of learning support needs. The new model will create partnerships between the student, their whānau and the early learning centre or school. This will give students and whānau greater choice and control over what the best support looks like and tailored delivery of services to the needs of the learner rather than what suits the system. Supplementary. Why was the review into high needs learning support needed? Mr Speaker, the review has been long called for by the education sector and practitioners, disabled people and parents. And the review has found that these advocates have found what these advocates have been telling us. There is clear evidence of inequities within the system. We had over 1,100 submissions that show the current system, which is over 20 years old, is fragmented and lots of our kids and young people aren't getting the support they need when they need it. This government has committed to changing that, so every child, regardless of their learning challenges, get the best education that they deserve. Supplementary. What investment has been made to improve the delivery of learning support services? Mr Speaker, following years of inadequate funding, this government has invested in learning support services. This has been evidenced through the rollout of learning support coordinators, $297 million invested into ORS, 95 extra places in the intensive wraparound service, investment into frontline specialist staff and funding the, high, the school high needs fund. While we recognise that many are calling for additional funding, we want to ensure the funding that is available is being spent in the most effective way to meet the needs of the learner which is why we have committed to a comprehensive business case due mid-next year. What feedback has she seen on the announcement? Berenpore School Principal and NZDI Tereorua Vice President Mark Potter said the government's commitment to a bold overhaul of the current system was strongly welcomed. And I absolutely echo those thoughts. This overhaul is bold requiring medium and long-term change which will require time to develop and implement effectively. There is work to do to address the fact that some students aren't getting the right support they need when they need it. That's right. This government is committed to barrier-free access to education for all students. Uh, question number eight, Ricardo Menendez-March. 
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Immigration and asks, does he consider the current immigration policies to be fair and equitable towards migrant families? Mr. Speaker. Uh, the Honourable Mr. Speaker, yes, I do. Uh, yesterday I announced that Immigration New Zealand will be prioritising Resident Visa 2021 applications from applicants who are currently separated from their offshore partners and or dependent children. Overall, the Resident Visa 2021 programme will provide a residency pathway for over 200,000 uh, migrants to New Zealand and support their families to settle here. In addition to this, other initiatives our government has pursued to improve the lives of migrant families and communities include our recent reopening and updating of the settings of the parent visa category, uh, reopening the skilled migrant category, doubling the refugee quota, and our support for Afghan nationals to settle in New Zealand following the fall of the Afghanistan government late last year, and forming a migrant community reference group. Every country needs to ensure that its needs are met through its immigration system, but a key part of that under this government will be fair, equitable and respectful policies towards migrants and their families. Supplementary. Does he consider it fair that many migrants, including migrant nurses, will not qualify to be reunited with their parents in Aotearoa because the salary requirements are under the required $86,000 a year for one parent or $115,000 for two parents? Uh, Mr Speaker, I don't entirely agree with the member's uh, assessment. For the benefit of the House, uh, parents and grandparents are able to be reunited and connect with families in New Zealand uh, through the parent and grandparent visa, which is a temporary category. So I don't accept that it is correct to say that there is no pathway for migrant families to connect with parents and grandparents overseas. Uh, it is a somewhat different question uh, when it comes to the longer-term residency category that is the parent visa category that the member is uh, referring to. Our government does believe that it is a balanced approach that we have taken. We have reopened that category after it was closed by the previous government. Uh, we have increased the overall cap over and above what was previously proposed, and we have reduced the income thresholds below what was previously proposed and provided greater flexibility for migrant families to meet those income requirements. But there is a fair balance to be struck here uh, to ensure that overall costs of the New Zealand system are managed. Supplementary. Does he agree with his Labour Party colleagues who recommended in a recent Select Committee report, quote, that the review of immigration instructions relating to health requirements for residency should consider creating exemptions for dependent children. And quote, if so, will he end discrimination on the basis of disability for dependent children of migrant parents to stop families from being separated? Uh, Mr Speaker, as I've indicated in the House previously, the Government will be moving forward with a review of family and partnership settings for a review process that will commence in 2023, and these matters can be considered as a part of that. Does he consider it, consider it to be fair that people from the Pacific Island nations need to apply for a visitor visa, pay visa fees and face delays to enter the country in order to visit family members, whereas people from the US, UK and Canada don't? Uh, Mr Speaker, yes, I do believe that our settings are fair. Uh, as we have canvassed in, this, in the House previously, uh, New Zealand uh, does have require visitor visas from a number of countries, not just the Pacific. 
uh, and in fact we have particular and special arrangements that reflect our, our strong relationship with the Pacific. Uh, we reopened our borders to our Pacific neighbours in advance of other countries as a part of our reconnecting strategy uh, this year. Uh, in many categories we have lower fees that are applicable uh, to people from the Pacific coming to New Zealand. And of course we have the special residency pathways, the Pacific and Samoan access quota categories. So yes, Mr Speaker, I do believe that overall our policies in respect of our Pacific neighbours are, are fair are and balanced and are welcomed by them. Supplementary. Does he agree with his Labour Party colleagues who recommended in a recent select committee report in relation to Tuvaluans and their families that, and I quote, the government consider a regularisation initiative for undocumented, for undocumented migrants? And if so, has he asked for advice on exploring a regularisation initiative for undocumented migrants? Uh, Mr Speaker, as I've commented on uh, publicly uh, over recent months, uh, the government uh, does not have a closed mind on this matter, and it is one that I have asked for further information on officials from. Um, Thank you. Uh, does he think it fair to say our refugee family reunification programme is a real pathway for refugee whānau when Immigration New Zealand routinely requires applicants to show they can provide separate housing for their immediate family for a period of two years, including by showing that accommodation fund is already in their bank account before they're even able to apply? Uh, Mr Speaker, I note that in respect of that category, the government has doubled the overall numbers from 300 to 600 this year to ensure that more refugee families are able to take advantage of that pathway. Uh, the member uh, points to one of, the, one of the inherent tensions that we have across a number of our immigration settings, which is that we do generally want to be um, facilitative and supportive uh, of people, particularly in difficult situations, to settle in New Zealand. Uh, but we do also want to make sure that when they are here, that they are actually going to be well supported, that they are going to have their core needs, including accommodation needs, taken care of. We try to strike the balance uh, right in respect of our policies, and we consistently keep that under review. Uh, question number nine, Melissa Lee. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Broadcasting and Media and asks, does he stand by all the government's views and actions regarding Aotearoa New Zealand public media? Uh, Mr. Speaker. Mr Speaker, yes, absolutely. And in particular, I stand by that the status quo for TVNZ and RNZ is not sustainable. Commercial revenues are declining <clears throat> and will continue to decline, meaning less money for New Zealand public media. We are future-proofing and we are acting now before it's too late. Supplementary question. Can the minister confirm that the worst-case figure outlined in Table 37 of the business case for the cost of Aotearoa New Zealand public media is substantially more than $6 billion in the new Crown funding over 30 years, as briefed me by his officials last week in his office. Uh, Mr Speaker, yes, that briefing did occur last week in the office. A number of scenarios were um, put forward and explained to the member, and I can confirm that we went with the, the current scenario, but we considered all scenarios. Mr Speaker. Supplementary, when the Minister confirmed that the business case discussed permanently decreased revenue and increased cost to the Crown for the RNZ and TVNZ merger, 
Did he contemplate at any stage any other model than forcing New Zealand taxpayers to spend billions of dollars propping up the new public media entity? Mr Speaker, yes, all scenarios were considered and we went with the best scenario. Does the Minister stand by his statement that, quote, we need a public media entity with the flexibility to meet audiences where they are, utilising the platform New Zealanders are choosing, unquote? If so, does that mean that Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media, ANZPM, will create their own platform or utilise other streaming platforms? Uh, Mr Speaker, the ANZ will, will have their own platforms and work with other entities. That's the whole point of this. We want to embrace our communities, work with our communities, uh, and there will be opportunities there, uh, and we're looking forward to it. We, we are so um, excited by this. We've got the majority of uh, uh, submitters behind us. We've seen New Zealanders behind us, uh, and, and we're on a roll. We want to invest in our New Zealand identity. Supplementary, will the merged entity, ANZPM, end up producing media content, public media content, provided free to digital streaming platforms like TikTok, YouTube and Netflix, so those platforms will be able to gain advertising revenue from them, as advised to me by his officials last week in his office? Mr Speaker, obviously... Uh, the operational CEO and the management will negotiate with the global giants. Uh, and I, I, I would uh, you only have to use a bit of common sense uh, that there could be a good deal in there for our national entity there. They will give away, no doubt, free, um, free programmes to community uh, organisations, to Māori uh, uh, TV. That's the point. That's the point of the entity. Please give me something there. Give me a good question today. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, question number 10, Arena Williams. Tēnā koe e to the Minister of Transport. What recent reports has he seen about the clean car discount? Uh, the Honourable Michael Wood. Mr Speaker, the Government's clean car discount is going from strength to strength. Since the discount came into effect last year, 117,585 low emissions vehicles, including EVs and hybrids, have been registered in New Zealand, over 80,000 in 2022 alone. Most months of this year, over 40% of the incoming vehicles have been zero and low emissions vehicles, making New Zealand one of the leading markets in the world for low emissions vehicles. I've been very pleased to see a range of reports demonstrating support for the clean car discount, including statements from the AA, the Motor Industry Association, Drive Electric and well-known Tesla owner Christopher Luxon. Yay. <laughs> what? Yep. Uh, I uh, warned another minister about, uh, about this. Um, and now this minister um, has done exactly the same thing. Um, he doesn't have responsibility for the leader of the National Party. He should stop doing I'll award the National Party two extra questions. Uh, point of order, the Honourable... Point of order, I, I don't understand how that is out of order. We are responsible uh, for the political consequences of mistakes that we make in this House and to neuter the House so as not even to be able to make a reference to that which is correct in fact 
I don't think extends uh, Speaker's rulings as to what is out of order. Yeah, I can handle this by myself. <laughs> uh, speaking to the point no. of order. No. no, I've made my ruling, that's the end of it. Supplementary. What benefits is the clean car discount scheme providing to our country's greenhouse gas emissions? Uh, Mr Speaker, New Zealand is at the end of a very long supply chain and could easily become a dumping ground for the world's dirtiest vehicles. We know that transport makes up around 40% of New Zealand's total domestic emissions and the tens of thousands of low emissions vehicles registered since the discount came into effect are helping to provide the transition of our, ve of our vehicle fleet. It will prevent up to 9.2 million tonnes of carbon dioxide emissions and will assist people with the upfront cost of switching over. Together, the clean car discount and the clean car standard are working in tandem to help Kiwis get into low emissions vehicles, something Mr Bishop was once in favour of. How are policies like the clean car discount supporting Kiwis to manage their transport costs? Uh, Mr Speaker, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has seen fuel prices spike around the world, leading to increased prices paid at the pump. The Government has moved quickly and decisively to provide short-term support for high energy bills and transport costs by introducing discounts on feed and ruck and half-price public transport. The clean car discount is complementing this work over the medium term by helping Kiwis switch to lower emission vehicles which are often safer and cheaper to run than those powered by fossil fuels. And again, Mr Muller, who had something to say, was once in favour of this policy as well. Supplementary. What other work is the Government alongside the clean car discount scheme doing to carbonise the transport sector? Uh, Mr Speaker, over winter, New Zealand has experienced the very real impacts of climate change playing out across real New Zealand, rural New Zealand in real time, with successive regions being smashed by extreme weather events repeatedly. The transport sector is New Zealand's second biggest carbon, New Zealand's biggest carbon dioxide emitter, and if we are serious about limiting the impacts of climate change, we must reduce emissions across transport. On this side of the House, we do have a plan to reduce emissions and to transform and decarbonise our transport system across the clean car discount, across the clean car standard, across investing in public transport, walking and cycling. We won't leave a carbon black hole like that lot would. Why has $41 million been paid to Tesla owners under the discount scheme and why is the government taxing farmers' utes to pay millionaires to buy Teslas with his reverse Robin Hood scheme? Uh, Mr Speaker, because getting New Zealanders into cleaner vehicles reduces our emissions. That was, a, that was a policy position that was supported by his leader yesterday morning when he said we would keep the clean car discount. However, in the afternoon he switched his position to say we don't support that but we want to keep the clean car standard, something that was then contradicted by that member in the evening. I back Mr Luxon over Mr Brown. Um, supplementary, Brown. Can he confirm that more than $7 million has been paid for other high-end cars like Audis, Mercedes-Benz and even one Jaguar, bringing the total to almost $50 million paid out for luxury cars under his reverse Robin Hood scheme? Mr Speaker, what I can confirm under the clean car discount is that over 117,000 low emission vehicles have come into our country since that time. 
What I can confirm under the clean car discount scheme is that electric vehicles have risen from 3% of imported vehicles in 2019 to around about 30% of imported vehicles month on month after the scheme has come into effect. And what I can also confirm is that there was once a time where some members of the National Party actually supported a transition to a cleaner fleet before they got taken over by that member and, and the other climate deniers who are currently running their policy. Question number 11, Kenny Simmons. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Education and reads, did he receive the Te Pukenga Programme business case in October 2022? Uh, the Honourable Grant. Oh. Thank you, thank you for the welcome. On behalf of the Minister, yes. I've answered. <laughs> Supplementary. Did the Te Pukenga Programme business case state an additional almost $1 billion of funding is needed for Te Pukenga's operating costs the government has not budgeted for? And if not, how much additional funding did the business case say Te Pukenga needed? Speaker, on behalf of the Minister, in answer to the first part of the question, no. Does the Minister stand by his Associate Minister's statement that, quote, no discussion has been had around co-leadership, or are the leadership roles being advertised on SEEK for all Te Pukenga regions occurring without the Minister's knowledge? Uh, Mr Speaker, on behalf of the Minister, I'm not aware of the document that the member was uh, waving in the House just then. Mm. Does the Minister agree the role description in the advertisements that, quote, the regional director roles are co-leadership, reflecting our Te Pukenga commitment to Te Tiriti o Waitangi, make explicit that this is co-leadership and if it's not co-leadership, what is it? Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, on behalf of the Minister, as I said in response to the previous supplementary question, I don't uh, have that piece of paper that the member... I don't have that piece of paper that the member is making reference to. I'm sure what we're attempting to do here is appoint leadership teams that are able to reflect all of those in our community. Supplementary. Doesn't the fact Te Pukenga needs almost another $1 billion to operate and the advertisements for co-leadership roles show the Minister has set up the vocational education sector to fail and the government is endorsing co-leadership. Mr Speaker, uh, on behalf of the Minister, no. What this process shows is that the government is actually committed to vocational education and not prepared to put up with what the previous government did, which was to leave close to $100 million worth of bailouts on the books of the incoming government. Point of order. Uh, point of order, uh, Point of order, Mr Speaker. I seek leave to table the advert for the co-leadership roles. Is it publicly available? Pub oh, I can't deal with that. Um, is it publicly available or is it privately um, available? Mr Speaker, uh, they no, I'm, would put... I'm joking. I'm sure it's publicly available, so no, you can't. 
Um, point of order, Mr. Speaker. They were put on seek, but they seem to have been taken off perhaps yesterday, Mr. Speaker. They're not now publicly available. Um, if you can describe it again, I will put the leave. So, so yeah, uh, the date? On the 10th of November, they will put up on seek, and sometime over the last day or so, they were taken off seek. Leave is sought for that purpose. Is there any objection? There is true. objection. Okay, will not be tabled. Uh, further supplementary? Yes. Have you got further supplementary? No? Uh, question number 12, Angela Roberts. Mr Speaker, my question is to the Associate Minister of Local Government. What engagement has he had with the local government sector? Uh, the Honourable Kieran McEnulty. Mr Speaker, over the past four months I've met with 54 rural and provincial councils. From the far north to Invercargill, these councils have been sharing their views on the issues that are important to them. These included civil defence, roading, climate change, water and housing, amongst other things. I was pleased that on the odd occasion they even wanted to talk about racing. Mayors and councillors from the likes of Waimate, Waitaki, Waimakarere, Wairoa, Waitomo, Waikato and Waipa have all had the chance to give their feedback directly to government. Every meeting was constructive and I thank every councillor, mayor and council official for their engagement. We listened. I passed on their feedback and now we are taking action. Supplementary. What announcements has the government made in response to feedback from the tour? Mr Speaker, in response to feedback on rural water schemes, the government has announced a $10 million programme to support rural, water, rural drinking water suppliers to meet new standards. Rural water suppliers are not impacted by the proposed reform of water services, so this programme will provide them with treatment systems, training and maintenance to help them keep their water safe, as well as to meet new regulatory requirements and drinking water rules. This program provides direct support to those communities who rely on rural water supplies for their drinking water. What other announcements has the government made in response to feedback from the tour? Mr Speaker, Council's also told me that they need extra capacity to implement the water services reforms. This led to a $44 million announcement where every council in New Zealand will receive at least $350,000 of additional funding to ensure they have the necessary resourcing. This funding will also allow authorities to draw in expertise to support councils through the water services reforms and continue business as usual. Supplementary. How is the government strengthening the coordination of the reform programmes affecting local government? Mr Speaker. The rural and provincial councils are clear on the need for reform. Be it in emergency management, resource management or water services, the sector were consistent in their belief that the status quo is unsustainable. But they also highlighted that there is a lot going on, with multiple demands being placed on the council officers who are tasked with responding to these reforms. In response to this feedback, we have set up a ministerial oversight group to strengthen the coordination and monitor the demands that the cross-cutting reform programs are placing on councils. This is a part of our wider commitment to work closely and productively with the sector to secure the best possible outcomes for local communities. 
What other themes were raised by rural and provincial councils? Mr Speaker, rural and provincial councils were consistent in their appreciation for the unprecedented investments that this government has made in their districts, but acknowledged that they were facing challenges. Rural and provincial councils are faced with significant land masses in their jurisdictions, but low populations and limited sources of revenue. The independent Future for Local Government review is seen by rural and provincial councils as an opportunity to respond to these issues. It provides an opportunity to ensure local government maintains a crucial role in our communities and is fit for purpose for the next 30 years. Understandably, we also talked about water services reform. The rural and provincial sector shared a variety of positions on the government's proposed reforms, but they were absolutely unified in their belief that reform itself is necessary and they can no longer go it alone. Supplementary. Of the councils he's visited, how many who opposed the government's three waters reform now support them after his meetings? And can he confirm the answer is zero? Mr Speaker, what I can confirm is that every single council of the 54 councils I visited believe that water services is necessary. Everyone believes water service reform is necessary. The only people that refuse to accept that reality is the National Party. The National Party is the only bunch of people that believes the answer to a $180 billion question is the status quo. Um, supplementary, the Honourable Stuart Nance. Uh, to the Minister, what response did he have from councils with regard to the concept of co-governance? Mr Speaker, of the 54 councils I visited, one councillor and one council raised concerns over co-governance. And this should be a wake-up call to the National Party, who rally against co-governance, not reading the room, not engaging with councils and not understanding that councils in New Zealand appreciate the benefits of co-governance. For the National Party, the solution to this issue is to ignore it, is to kick the can down the road for generations to come. They can sit in their corner by themselves. We'll get on for delivering for local government in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm uh, point of order. Um, uh, Mr I'm, Speaker, I, I'm seeking your advice on um, what avenues are available to the House when uh, documents are tabled uh, with an assurance from a member that they are not publicly available and when in fact they are publicly available. Uh, several years ago, Mr Speaker, this House moved from the situation where people simply tabled any old document uh, in the House to ones where they weren't publicly available. Um, that practice, I think, is one welcomed by the House that somewhat undermines it um, when we have a circumstance such as I've outlined. Yes, raising it as a point of order is not the way to do that. Um, there is a, a, a very a particular way of do, doing that, um, but... Um, Thank you. Um, and I, I will make a ruling uh, similar to previous ones um, regarding a question from the government to itself on a matter uh, that was then consequently used to attack another party. The Minister was not responsible for that party's policy and should not do it. Um, we've had that's the third time today. Um, I'll go back to uh, the, uh, uh, a previous um, question answered by the Honourable 
uh, Michael Wood and the point of order taken by the Honourable uh, David Parker. Um, you would have seen that I ruled uh, out of order the question um, or the answer to a question to the government itself. But when uh, a question from the opposition that contained uh, two legs and two assertions, and in that case, the minister also um, um, made a statement about the, that, that party, and I did not pull him up on that one. That's the difference. So if the government is asking a question of itself, should not do that. If the, if the uh, question is coming from the opposition that has an assertion in it and the minister is responding to it, then I'm accepting that under the regime that all parties in this House told me that they wanted. Um, so that's another thing. Um, so I will give the last question to Simon Watts if he would like to have it. Mr Speaker, can the minister outline one council who opposed the government's Water Services Entities Bill but now supports that bill after his meeting? Mr Speaker, there are a range of views on the proposals around water services, but it depends on the question that is asked. Many councils have expressed concerns in a constructive manner to help us improve the bill. All of them understand and recognise that reform of water services is absolutely necessary. If you were to go to any rural and provincial council, take your pick out of 54 and ask them the same questions that I did, Mr Speaker, can you do this by yourselves? They will get the same answer that I got. No, we can't. Reform is necessary. By all means, they can stand up in this House and try to trick us into saying something they want to hear, but or they could go and engage with councils, learn that councils want to do something, and actually, after four years, come up with a policy of their own. Uh, that concludes oral questions.